Welcome to episode 99, Turning the Frown Upside Down, TMS and the Treatment of Depression, featuring Dr. Shashita Anamdar, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Make sure to subscribe to hear future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Shashida Inamdar, MD. She is a licensed and board certified child, adolescent and adult psychiatrist. And she is a medical director of Achieve Concierge and Achieve TMS centers. Um, She has a specialization in working with neuropsychiatric disorders. Thank you, doctor, for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about this specialization in these kind of different treatments than the mainstream treatments for depression? Um, So I'm a board certified child and adolescent um, and adult neuropsychiatrist. Uh, I have been in practice for uh, 17 plus years and about 10 or 12 years back, when we were at a conference, I was looking at different modalities and different approaches for depression. For the longest time, the only two things we had was uh, medications and talk therapy. Um, and in the most severe of the severe cases was ECT, which is shock therapy. Um, I was looking for something more to offer for my patients, um, especially the functioning depressed patients. I call them the walking wounded. Patients who were depressed but not suicidal or not necessarily in the hospital. And that's when um, I came across TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a non-invasive FDA cleared uh, treatment approach for uh, treatment resistant depression. Uh, And more recently has had indications for obsessive compulsive disorder, smoking cessation, um, there have been studies uh, using it. Sh- there have been studies showing utilizations in ADHD, and I feel like you know we have so much more to learn about this. Absolutely, thank you for sharing. I know for me, as a licensed marriage and family therapist, TMS is one of those things that I've had a passing relationship with, but don't really understand. And I think many of our listeners are looking forward to the opportunity to hear from an expert, you know, what is this? How do we as clinicians offer information about this to our clients? And when is the right time to introduce a service like TMS? So let's start by talking about kind of the neuroscience underlying depressive disorders. Uh, so when we talk about depression, um, when I'm talking with families, when I'm talking with friends, when I'm talking with patients and their families, um, for the longest time, it you know there is still that stigma around mental illness and depression, and we know that depression is a neurological disorder. There is a biologic component, there is a genetic component, there is a psychosocial component, and there is of course the component of life stresses. Um, so many times you have heard family members or patients say, "I've tried this medication," or "I've tried exercising." but I feel guilty that I'm not feeling better. My motto is depression is not a choice. Depression is not a character flaw. Depression is a neurological disease. It's a brain disease. And that's how we need to target it. And in the last 10, 15 years, we have had research showing uh, functional MRIs of patients' brain 
when they're depressed or when they're not depressed. Um, that there is actually a physical change in the neurochemistry. There is change in the level of uh, hormones and neurochemicals in the brain. And by using a technology such as TMS, we are targeting the actual root cause of depression, which is targeting the neurons in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. More precisely, the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex or a left DLPFC. So tell me more about the DLPFC. How does that um, region affect mood um, and resilience, things like that? And how is that translated into what we know as depression? Um, so depression is not a one size fit all. There can be depression where patients are sad, tired, fatigued, suicidal. But there are also patients who present with depression and anxiety where they are more hyper, agitated, not having the resilience to deal with life stressors. Um, one thing we do know is that the left DLPFC or the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is the mood and emotion regulation center. And in depression, there is down regulation of those brain regions which means that the neurons in that area of the brain are not quite functioning as much as they should. Subsequently, that causes imbalance in the neuron chemistry, such as uh, serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And a lack, or more precisely, a less amount of these neurochemicals then result in the subjective symptoms of depression. And when a person is depressed, they're less likely to do some of the activities which can make them feel better. So then it becomes a vicious cycle. So that's the aspect of it with the left DLPFC. The second thing is using the term neuroplasticity. What that also does is that uh, the left DLPFC is connected and there are pathways into the lower or deeper brain regions such as the thalamus. And that pathway is what is also affected in depression. Got it. And standard uh, depression treatment. So let's talk about kind of the the first line use of antidepressants. How do those tend to function in the brain? And how is that different than, um, say, therapy or other, other depression treatments that are out there? So standard medications such as Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, which are SSRIs. Then there are SNRIs. SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So these are medications which help increase the level of serotonin in the areas of the brain. Then we have the SNRIs, which are selective serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So those affect the serotonin as well as the norepinephrine in the brain. And then we have um, medications such as Welbutrin, which can affect the dopamine. In severe cases, there are also atypical antipsychotics which are used. But when we think of medications, it's a bottoms-up approach. So when you, for example, if you take, let's say, 60 milligrams of Prozac, only about 60 to 70 percent actually reaches your brain. And the 40 percent which doesn't go into your brain has the side effects such as weight gain, feeling numb, and in some cases, sexual side effects. Plus, when we take a pill and it goes into your bloodstream, it doesn't go just to the left DLPFC. It pretty much goes to other areas of the brain as well. 
instead of being specifically targeted to that brain region. Um, medications, uh, as effective as they are, are only about 30 to 40% effective. So I think you just kind of led me to my next question. Um, I was going to ask, why are these medications not as effective for certain people? But I think you answered some of it, which is not all the medication is getting its way to the brain. And I would also imagine another part of it, it's not necessarily that the medications aren't effective, but then we have side effects that are contributing to the the cessation of the medication that would under underlie or, or uh, take away the benefit. Um, what are some other reasons that d- antidepressants may not be as effective? Um, I think one of the things is we have to remember that depression is a all-encompassing um, illness. When you are taking a medication, when it's not working, and when you have side effects, and you have to wait three to four weeks before you can even tell whether it's kicking in, the motivation and the compliance goes down. Um, studies have shown that in patients with depression, there is close to a 40% non-compliance, uh, something which we don't quite take into consideration. The second thing is side effects, side effects, side effects. There are so many side effects associated with antidepressants that sometimes because of the side effects, the patients are put on a second medication to treat the side effects. And then to treat that side effect, they're put on a third medication to treat the side effect. So it becomes a cascade. And unfortunately, along with that comes uh, somewhat of a sense of hopelessness, um, where patients feel, what more do I have to do? Um, and, And that's kind of a sad thing. Absolutely. I can certainly relate with having seen clients before that have been on any number of different cocktails to treat their depressive symptoms and feel really helpless. Like they, they've run out of options or isn't much hope that they're going to find something to make them feel better over the course of decades. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about um, neuromodulation, what that really means, and how TMS fits into the equation with neuromodulation? So neuromodulation is the process by which brain activity, that is the neuronal activity, is modified, which means you can upregulate or downregulate the neurons. And this happens by altering the level of neurotransmitters, which are the chemicals in the brain, such as serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. Uh, So that's what neuromodulation is uh, scientifically described as. And we can stimulate, inhibit, or alter a specific neural network connections in the brain system. Um, There are various technologies and mechanisms which can affect neuromodulation, some of them being ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, which is shock therapy, Uh, deep brain stimulation, where there's actually stimulators put inside the brain surgically, vagal nerve stimulation, um, which is VNS, where there's somewhat of a pacemaker which is placed on the vagal nerve, Uh, neurofeedback which is basically think of it as neurofeedback, which is almost as a physical therapy or a biofeedback for your brain. Also, when we talk about talk therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, DBT or dialectical behavior therapy, that is also training your brain to alter the thoughts and can affect neuromodulation. Um, But the most precise and specific way of neuromodulation 
which we have available to us so far is TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation. Okay. So it sounds like neuromodulation is just the change basically of, of the status quo in the brain of either increasing or decreasing different neurotransmitters. And then effectively, we have all of these tools at our disposal to try to influence that to improve a client's depressive symptoms. Exactly. So now comes a really, really interesting part. Tell me about TMS. You know, this is one of these acronyms that we've heard about, uh, but many of us really don't know what that is and how it works. Um, So TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation is a treatment approach which utilizes the capacity of our brain to adapt and change. Um, What it involves is using magnetic pulses to stimulate neuronal activity in areas of the brain, such as the left DLPFC in case of depression. Uh, These are the areas of the brain which are responsible for mood regulation. Uh, During the treatment, uh, magnetic pulses gently pass through the patient's skull and it stimulates the areas of the uh, stimulates neurons in the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex what that does is also affect the neurochemicals just like a medication such as serotonin dopamine and norepinephrine but a more important uh, aspect is that it actually activates the deeper neuronal circuits the neuronal pathways which makes it a more long-lasting and a resilient uh, response. So to put that in layman's terms, you're saying basically the magnets in TMS are activating, exciting certain neurotransmitters, and the brain is adapting to that in order to produce the desired or yeah, the desired neuromodulation to target certain symptoms. Um, so what does that actually look like? Like how how does that work? Can you describe it to us? You know, if someone were to co- come in for TMS, what do you tell them? What does it look like? What does it entail? So TMS is an FDA-approved non-invasive treatment approach for treatment-resistant depression, OCD, and more recently it has been approved for smoking cessation. So depending on the condition we are either upregulating or activating those neurons, or in some cases, we are downregulating or inhibiting those neurons. Think of it as a top-down approach. So it does the same thing as a medication because it affects those brain regions, but instead of it having systemic side effects, like affecting your liver or weight gain, it is very specific and directly affecting only the area of the brain which we want to target. That's the big difference. So how does one do that? You know, I have this, I have this image in my brain of, of a doctor standing there holding magnets, you know, and obviously that's not right. So what does it actually look like? And if we have a client, for example, that we've been seeing that has been struggling with depression, they're going in for TMS, what do providers need to know? And like this, basically, this is how it works. And this is what clients need to expect if they're going to have an assessment for whether TMS is appropriate for them. So I think the uh, so the first thing is recognizing that this is a medical procedure. It has to be trained. It has to be uh, done by trained and licensed physicians who actually are trained in TMS or neuromodulation techniques. Um, it has been FDA approved since two thousand eight, and there are now more than eight or ten 
devices which are available for DMS. So the technology is now widespread and well accepted. When a patient is first referred for TMS, um, he or she gets a comprehensive psychiatric evaluation by a psychiatrist in one of our offices. Um, at that point, we determine whether TMS is an option, what medications the patient is taking, if there are any risks or contraindications, and then educating the patient on how the treatment approach is. The second step is scheduling a cortical mapping, which is when using the device, using the TMS machine, we can actually target the specific areas of the brain, in this case, the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that is marked on, um, that, that location is marked. And then there are daily treatments where the patient comes in, sits in a comfortable chair, um, watches Netflix or listens to music or meditates. Um, on an average, the treatment takes about 22 to 25 minutes. Um, it feels there is nothing entering your brain. There is nothing touching it. Basically, what it is, it feels like a woodpecker um, tapping. It is a constant tapping. And that is what then affecting the Pre dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and stimulating. The patient comes in, sits in for a 22-minute uh, to 25-minute appointment, and then can go back to work or school right after that. There is no anesthesia. There is no invasiveness. There is no MRIs. It is a outpatient 25-minute procedure. We have actually had patients who have come in at 5.30 in the morning before going in for work. We have had um, college kids who have come in during their lunch period, get their TMS treatment, and go back to work. Um, one of the things I always recommend uh, discussing with the patient is that it is a commitment because it is four to five days a week for 30 sessions. Um, but the results are so rewarding that uh, we have not had any issues with patients following through with the treatments. Got it. So when um, when clients or patients are experiencing this tapping, are they wearing some kind of helmet or what kind of what physical um, devices are used to accomplish this? And I, I also have this image of the old school hair dryers at a salon. <laughs> um, so so for our listeners, kind of paint the picture of what this looks like when you're talking about a TMS machine. Um, so the TMS machines uh, in the past few years are very sophisticated. It almost looks like a uh, really comfortable ergonomical chair where you're sitting on it. Um, there are some of these uh, machines have some of these chairs actually are where you can relax, put your feet up. Uh, you do wear earplugs because it does make a sound. Uh, if it is a Neurostar or superficial or RTMS, it is a wand that sits gently on your head. Um, nobody needs to hold it in place. You can move your head. You can look at the TV. You can talk. But it's a, a it's like a wand which sits gently on your head. With the brain's way, it is a helmet, similar to the old hair dryer, but much more comfortable, which sits snugly on your head. And with the next stem system, it is um, neuro-navigation-guided TMS, so there are actually infrared cameras which help change or move with the location of the head. Um, but these are very advanced, ergonomically comfortable uh, chairs with machines, and it is just something which is sitting gently on your head. 
That's very interesting. So it sounds like you just described multiple different kinds. So kind of the the helmet style, if you will, the one that's kind of a wand. So what you're saying is for practitioners that are listening to this and, and maybe referring or working with someone in TMS, you don't necessarily know what that doctor might have. So we probably shouldn't tell our clients, oh, they're going to put a helmet on you and you're going to just lay in a chair because they might have a different kind of machine that's accomplishing the same goal. Um, it's a different kind of machine and different kind of treatment based on what the patient's needs are. Um, and so the three more, the two most uh, used technologies are Neurostar or RTMS and Brainsway or Deep DMS. So those are the two most uh, widely used and um, have the longest amount of data for uh, TMS. So tell me the two different kinds that you just mentioned and how a physician makes the determination which method is most appropriate for a a presenting issue or presenting client. So Neurostar or RTMS was the uh, technology which was first FDA approved in 2008. It is also known as superficial TMS, where it's a wand that sits on the head it is held by liver, so you really don't have to worry about holding it in place. Um, the treatment session takes about 30 minutes or so, but it is superficial TMS as it activates the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So it is FD approved for treatment-resistant depression. When I see patients, I generally use Neurostar in somebody who is younger, somebody who has less of a pain tolerance, somebody who's more sensitive, that's where I use the Neurostar machine. Um, Brainsway is the deep TMS, uh, where it actually affects not just the superficial areas of the brain, but much deeper areas. Brainsway uh, deep TMS technology is more robust in treatment-resistant cases. For somebody who is older than 50 or 55, I prefer to use the deep TMS technology. Um, Also, uh, some of the other indications, such as obsessive compulsive disorder, where you need to target a deeper brain region, that's where the brainsway deep TMS is used. And more recently, just within the past few months, they have gotten approval for a smoking suggestion. So I'm I'm conceptualizing these two different kinds of TMS. We have the superficial and the the deep. Um, How do the treatments differ? Are they the same amount of time, about the same number of sessions? How would it differ for someone who, like you said, is younger and you would go for the superficial style or type or someone who's older that you'd recommend the deeper stim that's more effective for people that um, maybe have had a longer standing, more treatment resistant depression? Um, so the main difference is the technology, how you're transmitting the magnetic pulses. So in Neurostar or superficial TMS, it's with a wand, whereas with Brainsway, it's with a helmet. That is one big difference. The second difference is uh, if there is a risk of uh, seizures or if somebody who is more sensitive, uh, Neurostar or superficial TMS historically has been shown to be a little more comfortable than the brains with deep TMS, although we have had several patients who have found it the other way around. Um, The second thing is because Brainsway is a helmet, sometimes patients who have agoraphobia or are afraid of being in a closed space 
the neurostar or superficial TMS is uh, more comforting to them. But in a sense, both technologies are very effective, um, are very robust, and use the same mechanism of action. Got it. And so then about the same frequency, so coming in mm -hmm. four or five times a week, 20 to 25 minutes, mm -hmm. and expecting about 30 treatment episodes. I describe it as having an Apple or a win um, Apple or Windows. Some people are used to using a Mac system. The others are using a Windows system. You can still make a presentation. You can still write an article. It depends on what your comfort level is and what your needs are. Got it. Okay. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, you touched on it for just a moment there. Tell us some of the research about the efficacy of TMS. Uh, so TMS is not a new technology. It has been used in Europe for more than 20 years. FD approved in the U.S. since 2008, and now it is a well-accepted and well-established uh, treatment approach in all parts of the country. All the major academic institutions like Harvard, Yale, UCSD, UCLA offer TMS as part of their treatment protocol in neuropsychiatric conditions. Um, Till date, and I was looking up the research yesterday, there have been more than 15,000 uh, peer-reviewed articles showing the efficacy as well as the safety of TMS in patients. So 15,000 peer-reviewed articles have been published. Um, as far as uh, a meta-analysis, TMS has been shown, when we talk about depression, we talk about response, but we also talk about remission, something which was not even discussed before the advent of TMS. And um, one of the more recent papers show that after 20 sessions, the response rate is close to 60 to 65%. And the remission rate, which is a complete absence of symptoms, is shown to be close to 30 to 32%. So that number was after 20 sessions. So they're mm -hmm. a little over halfway through. I was going to ask for a patient that's going through it, you know, we say to someone who's starting an antidepressant, it's going to take you a minimum of two weeks, but likely up to six or eight weeks for you to feel a change. You know, we all kind of know that script that the therapists know to, to say that someone who's starting antidepressants mm -hmm. and we refer to a doctor. Um, for a person that's starting out with TMS, how long until they can feel like, oh, maybe something's working? Uh, typically, it is by the end of first week or 10 days when you almost see like a light switch going off. Um, we have had patients who have come in who have made no eye contact, who are just tired, who are not talking to the technician. And by eight, by eight to 10 sessions, you see them smiling. Um, I have had patients who have come in disheveled, um, not really taking care of themselves. And by session 10 or 12, you see a switch that they're putting on their makeup, they're better dressed, they're talking to the technician or their peers in the waiting room. Um, so generally by around eight to 10 sessions when we start seeing a response. The first thing that improves is sleep. And when I say sleep, it's not just the quantity of sleep, but also the quality of sleep. So many times patients have come in saying that I've not had dreams for years and now I'm actually dreaming, which means that they're going into the REM sleep or the deep sleep. 
The second thing that improves is the cognition, focus, and memory. A very common example or very common symptom which is described with patients is that if one of my patients actually described it that you know when you're driving and it's raining and your windshield is foggy and suddenly when the wiper goes off and things seem more clear that's how patients have described that they start feeling that their thoughts are more linear and clear um, actual depression generally takes about 20 to 25 sessions uh, where subjective symptoms of sadness or suicidal thoughts get resolved. But again, it varies uh, from, you know, different patients and their responses. Um, when we're thinking about, you know, the, the client or patient response, let's say you get 20 sessions in and the client is saying, yeah, I just, I feel the same. What happens from a treatment planning perspective with you is the physician uh, and potentially with the the other involved professionals, whether that's psychologists or therapists or dietitians or whoever else, um, what are the next steps then if you're if you've made progress through treatment but still aren't achieving those treatment gains you're hoping to? Um, so um, when you're going through a thirty session of TMS, um, we want to make sure that we have a cortical remapping or readjust the location at least once or sometimes twice during the whole treatment process. The patients are monitored and evaluated on a daily basis where we have them fill out a PHQ-9, which is a depression scale, a GAD-7, which is an anxiety scale, and sometimes a MADRAS, which is another depression scale. Uh, so we do monitor them on a weekly basis to look at the change in responses. There are situations where patients who have not responded by 15 or 20 sessions, we might change the protocol or do a cortical remapping to adjust the locations. Um, and uh, another important thing to have is close collaboration or communication with the treating uh, psychiatrist or treating therapist so they can monitor the changes in the patient's mood subjectively as well as objectively. Uh, and on the same note, there are a handful of patients, close to about 10 to 15 percent of patients, who take longer and who might not even see it, who might not notice a dead response till sessions 20 or 25 or 30. When you're going through a 30 session protocol, let's say, and that's mm -hmm. the anticipated length of treatment and the client has been adherent. Um, are they still taking their standard antidepressants? So is this layered on top of their current antidepressants or is this done in place of? Like, how does that work when you're when you have the um, medications involved? Um, medications, TMS, therapy are different tools which we have in our toolbox. It does not have to be either or. Uh, most patients continue taking their medications it is important for them to be engaging in therapy. And in fact, we have often found that after TMS, the patient's responsiveness to medication improves because basically you're waking up those neuronal circuits. And once the neuronal circuits are waking up, those circuits are firing, the response to medication is actually, actually improved. The same goes for therapy. Oftentimes, psychologist and therapist letter tells us that you see more participation in groups. There's more insight and the patient is more engaged and present during the therapy session. So therapy, 
is absolutely an important cornerstone even when undergoing TMS treatment. Medications, it depends on the client or the patient where we like to continue the medications during the TMS. Um, oftentimes, and again, this is not a rule, but oftentimes when patients start feeling better, sometimes a month or two months later, we are able to reduce the dose or gradually taper the patients off the medications. But during TMS, our goal is for the patients to get better. When you as a professional who does TMS are referred someone that has had treatment-resistant depression for however many years, so chances are they already have a psychiatrist, is it common practice for the TMS uh, MD to take over all psychiatric care, or do psychiatrists often work alongside one another so you still have the prescribing uh, psychiatrist, if you will, and then the TMS doctor? So the it takes a lot of uh, rapport and conversation with the psychiatrist. And if a patient has an established psychiatrist, absolutely not. So we actually communicate with the patient psychiatrist, collaborate with them, make sure that the medications are adjusted. And then once they finish the series of TMS, the patients go back to their treating psychiatrist and continue their care there. Um, but we is, but we have a close collaboration and send them our notes, uh, send them the PHQ-9 and the anxiety scales, and also um, the actual treatment protocol and the patient's responses. But as a treating TMS provider, we take care of the patients during those 30 sessions or four or five weeks, um, and then the patient goes back to the treating psychiatrist. Okay. And we are right now in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic as we record this, and a lot of things in our lives are being interrupted. What happens if somebody is partially into TMS treatment and for whatever reason they discontinue? Um, what happens to the treatment gains if they've had any? Let's say they, they went to half. Let's say they went to 15. Um, what happens to those treatment gains? Do they slip back where they were before? Can they pick up where they left off? How does that work? Uh, generally, we recommend that patients should have at least 20 sessions in continuum because that's when you actually start making changes at the cellular level and a DNA level in the neurons. Um, however, due to life circumstances, if somebody is gone for two or three days, they don't lose those gains. However, if they have gone, if they have had only 10 sessions, generally we don't really see the benefits of the TMS. But we have often had patients who have come in for 20 or 25 sessions, um, gone for a work trip and come back and finish the rest of the sessions. Mm -hmm. And tell me about some of the most common risks and contraindications for TMS. Um, just like any other treatment, there are associated risks, contraindications, and side effects. Um, overall, TMS is a very safe, non-invasive treatment approach, which does not involve anesthesia or surgery or um, any invasive procedure. Um, there is a there are, however, a certain number of risks. Uh, one is a slight discomfort or headache, which happens at the treatment area, which can, with, and sometimes when patients have that, just pre-treating them with uh, acetaminophen, Tylenol, or Advil can help with that. Um, the second uh, risk factor is um, 
risk of seizures because we are stimulating the neuronal brain regions. However, the risk of seizures with TMS is 0.01%. And for those of us who are comfortable with medications, that is the risk of seizures with um, Welbutrin, which is a fairly commonly used antidepressant. Um, those are the two most common side effects, uh, which is why when we are screening the patient or during an initial evaluation, if they have a history of untreated seizures or if they have a history of epilepsy, we really want to make sure that um, that has been ruled out. Um, as far as contraindications go, um, anybody who has a ferromagnetic metal, such as an aneurysm clip or a, a brain, uh, you know, post-brain surgery, on the same note, if it is a titanium plate, um, that is fine. As long as it is 30 centimeters away from the treatment site, that is okay. So cochlear implants, uh, you know, titanium plates in the neck, all of those are fine. But if they have a ferromagnetic metal in the head, that is a relative contraindication. Um, the third is if someone is actively psychotic, we really don't know what to predict, and that would be an absolute contraindication. Um, and the fourth is somebody's if if we have a patient who's actively using drugs or in withdrawal, and the reasoning behind that is because that can they can go into withdrawal seizures because of the drugs. Um, and which is why TMS might not be the best option at that point. Um, it sounds then that you're saying that a lot of people actually are pretty good candidates for TMS if they've had depression, particularly treatment resistant. Um, that phrase is something we throw around in the field. Really, what what does that mean? What is treatment resistant depression. And I know the other layer that comes with this, um, let's talk about payment. Let's talk about insurance, knowing that from insurance perspective, what I've heard before is that TMS um, may be covered by insurance for clients that have had treatment resistant depression. So start there. Please tell me about that. <laughs> uh, so treatment resistant is a fancy term for patients who have not responded to one modality or one antidepressant. So as far as the FDA is concerned, treatment-resistant depression is defined as somebody who has a history of depression, who has not had a complete response, or has had side effects to one antidepressant, even if it is one antidepressant. However, when it comes to insurance companies, that's a whole different ballgame. So different insurance companies identify treatment-resistant depression differently. On an average, most insurance companies look at treatment-resistant depression is uh, if a patient has tried two or more antidepressants and has either failed it or has not tolerated it, like if they have had side effect or has had a partial response. So when we think about patients which you and I see in our practice, most of them would qualify as treatment-resistant depression. Um, with regards to insurance payments, uh, when we first started doing TMS, it was no insurance companies were covering it. But I, but now that the technology is so advanced and so well established, um, almost all insurance companies are covering uh, TMS therapy for their patients, including Tricare, Cigna, 
in the past few years, even Medicare is covering um, uh, treatment-resistant depression um, for DMS treatment for treatment-resistant depression. Interesting. Um, I'm glad we covered that part about the treatment resi- resistant depression and, and what that really means, both from the FDA and from the insurance perspective. Um, and knowing that so many clients, I think more commonly than not, folks that start antidepressants will take another one at some point in time to work on um, work on their symptoms. So yes, many people then would meet that definition. I use a number that 90% of our patients, which we see in our practice, who are seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist, 90% would qualify as being treatment-resistant depression, which is a fairly, fairly high number. Yeah, I could, I can see that for those people that have depression, how many would have already achieved achieved that status without ever intending to, which speaks to part of the problem we have in our field. The fact that we're having this conversation um, speaks to the difficulty we're having in appropriately remedying something like depression and the fact that it so commonly becomes quote unquote treatment resistant. Um, so if someone does a full course of TMS and they have significant gains through that, and as you said, you'd want them to continue therapy and they may or may not continue antidepressants, how does that affect the long term when we're looking at depression through the lens of um, of chronicity? You know, how how chronic is it and what's a likelihood that they're going to relapse and have another depressive episode? Uh, So depression is a chronic condition, which is a relapsing and remitting condition. Um, Patients who have had, who have struggled with depression for years, um, whether it's a biologic component, a genetic component, or psychosocial component, even if we get a response and a remission, even after we get a response and remission with TMS, we often find that about 30% of patients have a relapse in about 10 to 12 to 18 month period. Um, So 30 percent of patients do relapse at around 10, 12, or 18 months. On the same note, most patients who do relapse notice that even when it is a recurrence of the depressive episode, it is not as pervasive and not as severe as the previous episode. Patients have described it, and the therapist and psychologist have described that after TMS, it's almost like they have more of a floor, where they have more bandwidth or more of a resiliency to handle some of the life stressors. But it's not a cure. It's not a permanent solution. And uh, oftentimes, we have had patients come in for a second series of TMS a year or year and a half later. Thank you for clarifying um, and when we're thinking about just the original success rate, if you will, um, for an initial treatment episode of these 30-ish sessions, what do the outcomes look like? Knowing that when we're looking at, say, therapy, for example, outcomes usually land us somewhere around 40 or 50% that that person after that treatment episode will experience a significant improvement in their symptoms. How does TMS kind of weigh in with that? Um, It's interesting you bring up that point because therapy has been shown to have a 40 to 50% response rate. Medications actually have shown to be a lesser response rate with just that trial, 30 to 40%. Um, TMS data and multiple studies and even our internal data has shown to be close to a 70 to 72% response rate. Uh, So it's pretty dramatic. 
um, and remission is close to 30% remission. Um, what we have also found is that if patient is getting TMS and in therapy, then it is an exponential response. They actually do even better. That leads me to another question. How does TMS complement the work that a therapist is doing? And is there anything that a therapist can be doing in their work with the client to facilitate um, improvement on all sides? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I personally feel that any patient who has struggled with depression or anxiety needs to be working with a good therapist concomitantly before, during, and after TMS. One of the biggest things a therapist can do is give that concept of hope that, yes, we are believing in you. Yes, we know that things will get better. And yes, we are going to look at other treatment options other than just medications or talk therapy. The second way is education. When a patient is referred for TMS, they are often meeting the meeting the treating psychiatrist or the TMS uh, provider for the first time. And I think education and awareness from a therapist or a psychologist with whom the patient has a trust, a relationship, and a rapport is very, very important. The third is changes in the mood and dichotomy. Because oftentimes when patients start feeling better, they refuse to be in the same abusive or same dysfunctional relationship. And we have seen that once patients start feeling better, sometimes it's a change in equilibrium in their family situation, which is a new feeling. And it is important for a good therapist and a, to have that relationship and expectation with the patient. Um, and lastly, and the most important piece is compliance. Therapists and psychologists are the boots on the ground. They are the front line. And they can be encouraging, supporting, and having the collaboration so that the patient has that continuity of care and recognizing if there is any good, bad, any changes in the patient's uh, mental status. I appreciate you breaking that down. Um, as an outpatient provider, I know when clients are going to an intensive outpatient program or to partial hospitalization or any number of other treatments, sometimes what inhibits me is not knowing enough about it and not knowing how to support it. Um, and I appreciate having this information because it informs what I'm going to do to help uh, improve the client's symptoms. Um, so... Does does TMS detract from therapy? It doesn't sound like it does. Uh, but in your experience, is there any is there any detraction? I think it's actually the other way around. It's rather than detraction, it's more complementary. Because when patients are more, uh, when patients start feeling better, when they're more motivated, when they're thinking clearly they're actually present and participating in groups or participating in therapy. They're more mindful and aware of how their dysfunctional thought processes or their decision-making is. Um, we have often had patients who have been in a IOP program and after 10 or 15 sessions, the therapist at the IOP often comments that the patient is more engaged, more present and willing to discuss changes in their lifestyle. So it's not a detraction, it's actually complementary. Um, you talked about a couple of different uh, ways 
to achieve neuromodulation earlier on when we were talking outside of TMS. So you mentioned ECT. What are some others and will you compare and contrast them? Like how is TMS different than the other things? You know, we unfortunately or fortunately, depending which way you look at it, we live in this world of acronyms. Um, so tell <laughs> us about the relevant acronyms medical perspective and how they are similar or different. Because I know for me, during my master's program, TMS was something I, I had never even heard of, but uh, ECT, for example, I had. So how could we use that as a foundation to kind of explain here's TMS and here's how they're different? Um, so, and off, you know, that is a very, um, that is a misconception. And um, often, ECT and TMS, often patients come in thinking that they're similar. The way I describe it is it's two ends of a spectrum. In fact, they are polar opposites in some ways. Because when we talk about electroconsultive therapy, you're actually shocking the whole brain. Uh, it involves anesthesia. So there's a risk of anesthesia. Patients need to be hospitalized. They cannot drive after or before treatment. And ECD can often result in significant memory loss, and the risks of death and seizures is much higher with ECD. TMS is the other end of the spectrum. It's more for the high-functioning patients. Patients can come in for the treatment, go back to work within the same day. It's gentle. It's not invasive. It is actually something that can improve cognition and memory rather than the other way around. So ECT and TMS are two ends of the spectrum. Um, deep brain stimulation or DBS is actually surgery where there is brain surgery under anesthesia and an electrode or a stimulator is placed inside the brain. Um, vagal nerve stimulation is FDA approved. Um, it's a little pacemaker which is placed on the vagal nerve. It does involve surgery, but the response rate are not as dramatic and not as persistent as uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And you have to go to a doctor's office every time you need to have it adjusted. Um, so those are the more common modes of neuromodulation. And the takeaway I'm hearing is that TMS tends to be much less invasive. Uh, and with much uh, different side effects than, I mean, ECT, I think, uh, makes a lot of providers wince um, because it it certainly can have its place in treatment, but the side effects are very severe. And I think many of us have seen that before. Um, and I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask, <laughs> how did TMS get started? You know, like I'm always, I'm, I'm always curious. Like, how do you, who was it? How did it happen? Do you know any backstory that someone said, you know, we could try to act on neuromodulation by using magnets and doing this thing? If you know anything, I'd love to hear it. Um, and that's an interesting story because I have actually met the doctor who was the first one to do TMS, and Dr. Anthony Barker introduced TMS in 1985. So when you think about it, that was years and years back, and he has been a pioneer in the field of TMS therapy. Um, he was looking at options other than ECT to stimulate or modify the brain. And, you know, we have heard about chemical modulation. We have heard about electrical modulation. He was trying to find an option where he could do it non-invasively, and that's where he decided to look at magnets. And 
year we have where it is an established uh, treatment approach, not just for depression, but so many other new frontiers. So interesting. Um, <laughs> and again, this is another one of those questions. How how do magnets work on these neurotransmitters? You, know, you talked about cortical mapping, and so you identify what region, mm -hmm. but what does a magnet do to dopamine? You know, how, how does that make a difference? So I'm going to use the example of Prozac. Like if you take 60 milligrams of Prozac, 60% or so, and ballpark figure, 60% reaches your brain. Then that goes into all your brain areas and makes your neurons uh, prevent the serotonin from being degraded. So that's how it increases the serotonin levels between the neurons. So that's the bottoms-up approach. With TMS, it's a top-down approach. So it's a really powerful magnets. Um, those are powerful magnets, almost the same Tesla or close to it as an MRI machine. And because of those magnets, it creates a magnetic field. And that magnetic field changes the electrical conduction of the brain. So Prozac or Paxil is a chemical conduction. TMS, because of the magnets, changes the electrical conduction of the brain. And that affects the depolarizations of the neurons, thus producing, thus making those neurons release more serotonin, dopamine, or norepinephrine, depending on the protocol or the circuitry. Got it. So it's basically a magnetically induced neurotransmitter dance party. Absolutely. Interesting. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, so we've covered a lot today. You know, we talked about the uh, pros and cons of TMS. We talked about how it stacks up against other neuromodulation techniques, how it complements therapy. What are some other considerations based on your experience that providers should hear about? You know, we've talked a lot really about kind of the, the science, the bones of it, but in the practice of it, what other pieces of information would you like to share with our listeners? Um, I'm very passionate about TMS, as you can tell from this conversation, because I've seen that it is a life-changing treatment approach. Um, one of the one of the unexpected benefits of TMS, which I have seen, is that it has medicalized the field of psychiatry. For the longest time, it was all about talk therapy and medications. But because there was no actual intervention, this has legitimized and medicalized the field of psychiatry. I'm not saying that it has removed the stigma. I think we are light years away from that. But I think there is more of an acceptance because patients look at the MRI or look at their brains and see that, yes, this is not my fault. And when you can actually have an intervention or a treatment which changes the neuronal circuitry and directly affects your brain, it is that sense of acceptance that this is a medical or a neurological disorder and it is not a character flaw. The second thing it has done is, and I have seen in my experience, is that Patients are much more vocal and much more acceptable talking about it. And then that leads to a downstream benefit that they're talking about it and become advocates talking to other patients or even getting help or taking help from their spouses or significant others or family members. So it actually has helped decrease the stigma around mental illness and helped legitimized the treatment approach and the diagnosis. I can see how what you're saying would support the the disease model of depression mm -hmm. and get us away from that idea that it's a, an issue of weakness Choice. or mm -hmm. whatever 
horrible judgmental words we might use. Um, and so one of the questions I didn't ask earlier, but I'm curious about, we talked a lot, a lot about depression. So a unipolar mood disorder, what about a client that has a bipolar disorder? How does TMS fit into the equation then? Is it okay? Is it contraindicated? Uh, so as of now, when it comes to the FDA, it is approved for treatment-resistant major depression. Um, Off-label, um, if somebody has a bipolar 2 disorder and there is a depression associated with it, and if they are on a mood stabilizer, um, if done judiciously, it can be very helpful, but that would be considered off-label. On the same note, I have seen, as I'm sure you have seen in your practice, that bipolar disorder is in vogue, and we see so many patients, if they're angry or if they're impulsive or if they're upset, diagnosed as bipolar disorder. So I really do uh, emphasize that we need to look at it carefully and see whether it's a true bipolar disorder or is it depression associated with it. If it is a bipolar 1 disorder with somebody who has a manic episode, then it is contraindicated, at least at this point. Um, out of curiosity, why is that that it's contraindicated? Is it Does it uh, lead to additional manic episodes? I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, just like an antidepressant or an SSRI, if somebody has a bipolar 1 disorder, an SSRI can cause more excitation and induce mania. TMS, very rarely, and I think part of it is because of the judicious use, but in some cases has been shown to cause excitation and induce mania, which actually shows the effectiveness of it, that it can actually induce mania in somebody who has a bipolar diathesis, um, which is why... It needs to be, you know, we need to have a careful diagnosis and judicious use in somebody who has a possible bipolar diathesis. And so if you have somebody that is right on the fence there, I mean, I know I have clients and I've worked with people mm -hmm. before that you're looking at it going, okay, is this complex trauma? Is this a bipolar disorder? There was past addiction history. So there are all these pieces. When when do you as a doctor say, okay, let's give this a try and then pull back and go, whoa, okay, apparently this is true bipolar. Because I know with some people, they may not even know that there's a predisposition toward bipolar disorder. And I've seen plenty of substance-induced psychosis. You go, oh my goodness, now we're in a manic phase. Um, how, how do you make that call of when it's okay to proceed when we don't necessarily know if this is absolutely uh, just depression, if you will? The biggest thing is do no harm. As a physician, our philosophy is do no harm. So if it is somebody who is on the fence, I think a careful history, collaboration with the therapist, making sure that there is a constant reevaluation on a day-to-day -day basis, and maybe using it judiciously. So instead of having it every day, doing it three times a week and kind of staggering it. The dosing, the protocol, it's a treatment and we can customize and we should be able to modulate that depending on the patient response. So in my practice, if I have somebody who is somewhat on the fence, I'm not quite sure, I would have them come in on Monday, Wednesday, Friday and see how they respond for the first two weeks and then make necessary changes. Okay, that's very helpful. So you're saying basically you have the option to adjust a protocol mm -hmm. to take into consideration changing factors for that particular patient. Mm -hmm. Or having them on a mood stabilizer, which can be somewhat protective to begin with. 
Wonderful. Um, well, doctor, this has been very illuminating, uh, absolutely fascinating conversation. And I'm very appreciative of your time and sharing this with us. If our listeners want to get in touch with you and learn more about TMS, um, either through you and through Achieve TMS or through other services, um, please tell us how to do that. Um, there are many, many TMS providers around the country. And our goal is advocating and making sure that we provide um, services. Um, you can go on the Neurostar or Brainsway website, um, and they have the pay, uh, physician finder where they can connect you with uh, specific providers in the community. As far as Achieve TMS, we have centers in um, California, Oregon, and Alaska. And our phone number is 844-HOPE-TMS. That's 844-H-O-P-E-HOPE-TMS. Um, so the goal is to just provide the service and advocate for our patients who really need this treatment. Thank you again for your time. I'm sure many of our listeners now are going to look up TMS and figure out who the providers near them are. Uh, and I also appreciate the recommendation for uh, knowing the different kinds of TMS that you just mentioned, these different brands. Um, thank you again, doctor. This has been really fascinating and I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.